You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. You know, it's a new year. New Year's resolutions. I'm sure you've probably made a few. And for many of you, you've already broken them. Um, I've never been a, a huge believer in the New Year's resolution game. I, I'm a big believer in goal setting and and um, and you know being resolute, being convinced and strong and firm in uh, your plan and in your goals. I, I believe though that it's um, there's a lot of pressure for the New Year's resolution. There's a lot of you know, focus on it temporarily. And and yet what I found causes the bigger change isn't necessarily a goal. It's sometimes just a shift in our thinking. And so one of the things I, I wanted to just suggest and share and share with all of us uh, today as as we're starting this new year is maybe we focus not on necessarily New Year's resolutions or goals, but how about just focusing on the intangibles that we want to have this year. And why I I mention the word intangible is humans are very prone to believe more what they can see or touch or 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 do. We believe more um in the tangible things of the world like the book than we necessarily do the content. So have you ever, for example, made a New Year's resolution? I've done this for years where I'm going to I'm going to run more. I'm going to work out more. I'm going to I'm going to work out more. Now, what I need are some shoes. I'm going to go get some shoes so I can work out more. Right. And we end up making the workout be more about having my shoes so I can work out or, oh, I need a gym membership a very tangible gym membership where I can go to the gym and the gym itself will then get me to do the workout that makes everything right for me. So we set the goal more on the tangible. We might set the goal on getting a six pack, right? Or you might set the goal on improving your 401k by $10,000 or whatever the number. In the end though, the reason we don't achieve the goal, it's not because of the tangible. That's just where we focused our attention. But we generally don't achieve the goal on the intangible, which are the things that actually we don't ever notice, we don't pay attention to, but they are the biggest predictors of ever accomplishing a goal. One of my favorite quotes says, it's not the bars that hold the tiger in. It's the space between the bars that holds the tiger in. If you go to the zoo and there are bars at the zoo in the tiger cage, but the bars are four feet apart from each other, then you're in trouble. You need to get out of there. Bars are the tangibles, but bars aren't the key to holding an animal in check, right? The space between the bars are, but the space is the intangible, and we don't ever pay attention to that until it's so vastly off that we now have to pay attention to it. So let me give you an example. If you want to have a six pack, that's a tangible goal. You want to have, you know, your abs rippling strong, very tangible goal. There are some intangibles though, 
that are going to make or break that goal. For example, your thoughts about weight, about life, your feelings about your gut and what it might feel like to have the six-pack, maybe your relationships and your habits. Now, to me, those four things, thoughts, feelings, relationships, and habits, those are intangibles. You didn't say you want to get married this year. A lot of us say, I want to improve my relationship with my wife. Great. But when we say that, what do you want to do? Well, I'm going to take her on more dates. Tends to be more tangible, right? So let me walk you through this, and and hopefully this will, will help all of us. A great start to any type of goal, instead of asking what you want, why don't you, I mean, instead of asking for a tangible thing, why don't you just simply ask yourself this question? What thoughts this year, if you could elevate them, would create the most positive impact on your year? What thinking do you have in your head that needs to change? Do you have certain thoughts about yourself? Do you have self-talk that, that beats you up and throws you down? Are there thoughts that you continue having toward your family or your friends that you need to replace? Can you turn some of your negative thoughts into healthier thoughts? And maybe more importantly, what thoughts do you want to experience daily? Instead of the negative thought every time you look in the mirror like, oh, I'm fat. What if the thought was that you wanted to have this year is, you know what? I'm, I'm getting healthier. I'm feeling better about my life. I'm looking better in the mirror. I'm more confident about my abilities. I want to have the thought to be able to just jump in the pool and not second guess if everyone's looking at my body. It's just a thought. But most of us don't pay attention to our thoughts, do we? We pay attention instead to the goal, the outcome, the abs, the weight loss, or what have you. So here's a simple question for this new year, and answer it just as you're driving to work or driving around. What thoughts, if elevated, would create the most positive impact for you this year? And if I were you, I'd go answer that and write those down. What thoughts do you have about your partner? What thoughts do you have about your job? I need to improve my thinking about my work. Second thing we could work on are our feelings. What feelings, if elevated, would have the most positive impact on your new year? What feelings do you notice constantly end up kind of overwhelming you? If you have feelings of being no good, then I'm going to bet you could attach that feeling to a thought. Every time I look in the mirror and I see my body, I think I'm ugly, and then I feel negative, down, depressed. So let's start working on the feelings. What feelings do you want to have for this next year? And I want you to go actually search it through. What feelings have been haunting you over the past years? What feelings tend to occupy your body, your day in, day out? Are they more positive? Are they more negative? What feelings do you continue to have about your life and your future? Do you have hope for your future? Or does it seem daunting, like, ugh, never going to happen? What feelings would you rather experience? And what's the most important thing you can do this year to create healthier feelings that you're seeking? Notice, both of those are intangibles, thoughts and feelings. They're very real. Don't get me wrong. I know you I know you know your thoughts and I know you know your feelings except those aren't usually what we're setting the new year's resolutions around if you want to have a healthier life and a healthier new year's resolution man let's work on thoughts and feelings
Okay, let's take a break. We're going to come back. When we come back, I'm going to give you two more keys, two more intangibles we should be focusing on for the new year. And if we do, I promise by focusing on the intangibles, it's you're much more likely to create some tangible change. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. As we see on so many different topics, it's just easy to kind of go with the status quo political argument about any issue. So when we're talking hunger, we have so many people that uh, would immediately politicize this and just think, you know, they just, they're just, you know... Always want more from the government, government handouts, and President Obama's just giving money left and right. And uh, okay, okay. And people are hungry. They're working at a fast food restaurant as a mother with three children, four children. What is she supposed to do? Well, get a better job. Great. Uh, how do you get a better job? When you don't have a car, you can't necessarily drive to the job interviews because you don't have a car, because you don't have money, because you had a medical issue or your spouse left you, and now you're trying to raise four kids. Where are you supposed to go? Years ago, she would just go to her church, and her brothers and sisters in the congregation would gather together, and they would lift her up. And they'd get her back on her feet, and somebody would babysit, and somebody would be getting rid of an old car, and they'd give her the car, and the church took care of her, or her family would take care of her. Well, many people don't live in a situation anymore where they have their local church that has any resources to take care of them, or where their family's not there. And they find themselves in a hole, which I believe eventually all of us are going to find ourselves in a hole. Just give life time. And eventually you'll be upside down. That's kind of how this works. When it comes to this world, the role of healthy rotates, doesn't it? And you may be on top of your game, but as we just learned from Joel Berg, uh, you know, some of the big advocates that are like, just make these people become more, you know, um, self-sustaining. Those same people, their parents used food stamps many years ago. That's because... Things change. Things rotate. But there's a weird thing going on here, if you notice it. And it's with a lot of the issues that we battle, we, we, we dichotomize an issue. So either we feed them or we just let them take advantage of us. Well, there's another answer, and it's don't either or this, baby. Just let it be both. We will feed the people that need to be fed, and some will take advantage of us. So let's not throw everyone out as being people that are taking advantage. The majority, apparently only 1%, are defrauding the SNAP program, the the food program for children. 1%, which Joel made a great point, is about the same amount of people that are being arrested in Congress. So we're not going to throw all the congressmen out as cheats just because 1% are cheating. Right? So let's just not politicize it. We do it with everything. We make it, the reality is everybody believes we should make people more self reliant. Duh, sure. And we all believe in charity to some degree, right? So can we not just figure out a way how can we create charitable uh, giving 
and ensure self-reliance. And there's no perfect way to do it because you've got to take it one person at a time. And I think what we see is really function, functionally in our big, 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 big government, it's hard for us to do anything where there's a one-off. When one person's different, it throws our systems. It's hard. That's why, honestly, a shift back from a government bureaucracy to a church on the corner helping to facilitate this would probably be a beautiful solution because the church on the corner can handle the one-offs because some people are in desperate need simply because their husband had to go have a kidney transplant and others have mental health issues. That's why they can't get back on their feet and others are really struggling other ways. So we have to sort it through and we can't just cast them all out and say, ah, they're just a bunch of losers because they're not working. Folks, the idea that we think or even equate people that are hungry with wild animals, which are quotes that have come from politicians in certain races from South Carolina to Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Republican Party actually put up on their um, on their Facebook page an announcement that they very quickly retracted that said the food stamp program administered by the U.S. Department of Agriculture is proud to be distributing this year the greatest amount of free meals and food stamps ever to 46 million people. Meanwhile, the National Park Service administered by the U.S. Department of Interior asks us, please don't feed the animals. Their stated reason for the policy is because the animals will grow dependent on handouts and will not learn to take care of themselves. Thus ends today's lesson in irony. Basically signed the hashtag Oklahoma GOP. (sighs) People that are hungry are not wild animals. And there's a principle here. And the principle isn't just self-reliance. And the principle isn't just charity. In life, and this is the key to, I believe, all success, we have to learn to balance all of the principles. We have to balance charity, love, caring for others, with self-reliance, getting people back on their feet, education, training, development. It's balance, folks. It's moderation is what it's called. And I propose we do it in all things. Interesting stuff, folks. Hoping to help you see the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if you turn on the TV or go online, you'll find two main stories prevail in the news. Some stories feature all the terrible things that people do. Others highlight the goodness of human nature. So what is our inherent nature? Are we born good or are we born selfish and evil? Here to discuss is the author of the article, Selfish is Learned, Mr. Matt Hudson. Matt, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. You bet. You, um, you, you've written quite the article, and uh, it appeared in Nautilus. Uh, and, and I guess what I, what I want to know, you may be answering the age-old issue, uh, inherently good, inherently bad. What, uh, what have you come up with? Yeah, so this is something that's been debated for centuries, millennia. Um, what, is the, what is human nature? Are we good people, uh, or are we you know, filled with sin, and we really need society to um, hold us to uh, 
better ideals. Um, and the research, based mostly on the work of David Rand, a psychologist at Yale, uh, points to the idea that people are naturally cooperative. Um, and it's not necessarily that we are born that way. That's you know, There's some research on that, but that's not what this addresses. This is um, what are our intuitions, and those intuitions could be uh, genetic or they could be learned. And so he focuses on our, our learned intuitions and uh, argues that most people have learned the intuition um, to be cooperative in most situations. Yeah, to get out and, I mean, I guess it's survival, right? It, it, the more people we know that like us that it, and it's positive, um, probably, I guess, increases survivability. Yeah, humans are very social and um, a lot of the things that we do, we really rely on other people for protection, for safety, for uh, mating, for uh, building large projects. I mean, look at a city. You couldn't build a city by yourself. It's just a bunch of people cooperating and trusting each other. Uh, and so there's definitely a benefit to helping other people out. Uh, they, in turn, help you out, and we accomplish great things. And in this... I guess part of uh, the the process is how how you play it. I guess how you're trained to play the game of life in in a cooperative way versus, uh, I guess, a more competitive way. Yeah, so that's uh, that's an important point. Uh, our intuitions are uh, we they develop based on our experiences. So if you are in a situation where cooperation tends to pay off, where you scratch someone else's back and they end up scratching yours, then you develop this uh, heuristic or this rule of thumb that uh, generosity and cooperation and and pro-sociality are uh, productive, are helpful, that they uh, lead to success. And you're more likely to use that as your sort of default choice. You're not always going to think about, okay, now is this is helping this person kind of help me out. Um, it's just going to be your natural inclination to, you know, be a good person. Whereas if you're in a situation where it's sort of dog-eat-dog and you learn that, um, you know, if you help other people out, they're just going to take advantage of you and stab you in the back, you might develop a different intuition, and that intuition might be to, uh, to be selfish. Right. is And we talked about it. And in fact, we've uh, talked to David before about his book and his model. And it talk, it gets into the, the prisoner's dilemma, which is a game that they play to show, you know, decision making where if I if I benefit you or if we work together, we can make more. But if I become selfish, then you become selfish and we get entrenched. And but what really, I guess. That that's that's kind of an experiential process, right? Not just the game, but in life. If I am if I am constantly treated in a in a competitive way, if I seem to be losing anytime I choose cooperation because others aren't going for cooperation, I, I will just naturally go selfish, won't I? And and it, it might it, it might not even seem like a moral issue to, issue to me. It might just seem like a survival issue. That's right. So the prisoner's dilemma, is, as you know, it's this simple economics game that's used in a lot of uh, research in economics and in psychology and, uh, and other fields. And it's kind of a metaphor for life. 
if you play a, a single round of this game, you decide whether to you know, cooperate or defect with the other person, and the other person decides the same thing. And if you um, both cooperate, then you know you get some reward. But if you cooperate and the other person defects, then then you're punished for it. Um, and it's really it really becomes a powerful model of human interaction when you play a, a series of, of repeated rounds with the same person, um, because then some more complicated strategies can become involved. Uh, in just one round, it's, it always pays to defect, no matter what the other person does. Hmm. But in multiple rounds, if you do that, then the other person is going to you know, take revenge against you. So you may want to cooperate uh, to sort of signal to the other person and hope that the other person doesn't take advantage of you. So it can get kind of complicated. Um, it's interesting. General, it's, that component of time, so however yeah. long this relationship's going to go on, may determine if being selfish or selfless is going to serve better long term. That's right. And, and most of our interactions in life, uh, most of our important interactions are with people with whom we will interact again. So it helps to build up this reputation or build up this level of trust or this standard of cooperation so that it can continue going forward. It's such an interesting um, dynamic, I guess, and it shows that it, how you how you are trained up. And as a child, if, if my parents are constantly selfishly going against me, I could be enculturated into buying into the idea that selfishness pays off long term um, but then that that will change based on who I hang out with and who I'm married to and my ability to to read the situation I guess that's right and and so uh, Rand and his colleagues actually tested this idea so in one series of experiments they um, they asked people to play what's called a public goods game uh, basically there are four people they're each given some money. Uh, they can each decide to put some of that money into a shared pool. Whatever money is in that pool gets multiplied and then redistributed. So uh, selfishly, it's you know, for one person, it, it makes sense to not put any money into that pool because you get to keep your money and then you also get to share in you know whatever anyone else puts in there. Right. And so they had people play this game in various conditions. Some people, they, they asked them to make the, their decision very quickly, uh, which kind of forced them to go by intuition. Uh, other people, they you know, encouraged them to use, they explicitly said, you know, think intuitively about this. And in, generally they, in general, they found that people were more generous when they thought intuitively. Um, so they put more money in when they had to react quicker, uh, so that sort of supported this general idea that people are naturally cooperative. Hmm. But they found that this pattern didn't hold for people who said that they, in general, in life, could not trust other people. So it's as if those people had not learned, had not developed this intuition that cooperation pays off. And therefore, when they had to think quickly and use their intuition, they did not become more generous. Oh, in so in intuition... We, we might think of it as a mystical thing, like, my gut just tells me this, but the gut may just be your history experienced. Exactly. So apparently over a, a lifetime, um, people can develop different intuitions. And they also, uh, 
Rand published another paper a couple years after that showing how quickly intuitions can change, and it can take just a few minutes. So in this study, subjects either played uh, repeated rounds of the prisoner's dilemma where they might uh, interact with someone for maybe eight rounds. And there, in these multiple round games, it pays to cooperate because then other people will cooperate with you going forward. And and so it encourages people to be generous. Other people play just single rounds where it pays to not be not uh, be selfless and to just sort of defect hmm. and take. Uh, and so co- then comparing these two groups, they then played uh, this public goods game. And the researchers found that those who had uh, just done the multiple round of Prisoner's Dilemma for about 20 minutes, they were more likely to cooperate in this public goods game. So just you know, in under half an hour, their intuitions had changed hmm. so that they were different from the from the people who had been encouraged to be it's like It's like they were primed, right? I guess so you could be primed to be good in the moment um, just by what you were doing before you got there. Yeah, so it doesn't take a whole lifetime to make someone a good person or a bad person. It can just take 20 minutes of interacting with people in one way versus another way, and that can change your, your intuitions. How interesting. Whether it's to be selfish or selfless. Yeah. And then, I mean, I guess even if I just went through a really crazy moment where I was selfishly totally taken advantage of, I wonder if if I then was able to go debrief with somebody who could help me see it clearly or differently, if that might prime me again to have a better interpretation again tomorrow. Yeah, it's possible that even just one uh, short interaction with someone that's maybe a minute long, that could even change your your default reactions to people. Which tells us, I guess, we have a lot of power with other people um, to influence them or prime them for selflessness. Yeah, it's sort of this pay it forward idea. Uh, if you're nice to someone else, then that could change that person's day so that uh, they end up being nice to the next person and so on. Wow. Crazy good. That's great. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Matt Hudson, and Matt is the author of the book, The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, How Irrational Beliefs Keep Us Happy, Healthy, and Sane. He also uh, is the book, uh, the author, uh, I mean, you can go find that book at magicalthinkingbook.com, and we'll continue the discussion of his article, Selfishness is Learned. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, see the good in the world. We'll be right back. That naughty girl from Willy Wonka. She needs to share. Shame on her. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're speaking with Matt Hudson. He is the author of an article that appeared in Nautilus, uh, Selfishness is Learned. And he's also the author of the book, The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, How Irrational Beliefs Keep Us Happy, Healthy, and Sane. Matt, thank you again so much for being with us. My pleasure. When we when we get into this, and uh, and I guess your book, uh, Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, as well, um, 
people, there's just basic, I, I guess, psychological terms or psychological conditions that are going on. Is that what you refer to as magical? Just something that works that we don't know is working? Um, I use a, a kind of a specific definition of magical thinking. Um, so some people use it to describe just sort of irrationality or um, belief that something great is going to happen, sort of irrational optimism. Um, I use it to refer basically to belief in the supernatural. So magical thinking would be believing in luck or destiny or mind over matter or life after death, that mm. sort of thing. Yeah. And it can be subconscious belief. So even if you say, I don't believe in luck, but then you end up crossing your fingers, <laughs> um, that signals, you know, you're behaving as though you believe. So it suggests this sort of subconscious or intuitive belief. And so I would call that magical thinking, too. Fascinating. And in the book, you bring up seven laws of magical thinking. Maybe just take us on a journey. What are some of those? Um, So one of them is, um, you might hear this phrase a lot, uh, everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's this belief in destiny or fate or or karma um, or divine providence. The idea that things that happen to us are somehow guided by an intentional universe. So good things happen to good people, or bad things happen to bad people, or you're put on a certain path so that something can happen, or that so you can learn a particular lesson. And I think this emerges from our, our social instincts. So we, we're used to thinking about uh, the intentionality behind events, because a lot of things that happen to us or around us are caused by people, and so it pays to think about who did this and why. Right. And then we kind of generalize and apply that thinking to even natural events, like hurricanes, like who, why, why did this hurricane happen? Was it um, you know, to punish a city for something? Like you know, people said that New Orleans was hit by a hurricane a few years ago because of the amount of sin there was in that city. Um, so it was easy to think, like, you know, what is the meaning behind this event? That's kind of a, an intuition that we have. It's, it's, I guess it, a lot of this is about making up uh, the meaning, right? And we, we're looking for it, and it, it seems, too, to all come from a more social, you know, to create some social connection, some social meaning that's healthier with others. Yeah, so... There are a couple of benefits to magical thinking. Um, I'm, an a- I'm an atheist and a skeptic, and I don't believe in magic, at least yeah. on an explicit level. Um, but I can still see how, even if these beliefs are uh, mistaken, that there can be benefits to them. Um, and one of them is that they can bring a sense of meaning to the world. So there's some research showing that um, when something tragic happens to someone, uh, if that person sees it as the work of a of a good God or is somehow you know meant to be or, or part of their life's plan, then they recover better psychologically from that tragic event huh. uh, because they see, oh, there must be a silver lining here, and then they look for that silver lining and then they find or create a silver lining uh, and it helps the the recovery process. Yeah, and and it gives it. I yeah, it ties the meaning to the event to hopefully like a bigger hope. I guess that's right. So uh, instead of just seeing um, 
a death or an accident or a job loss is just all around bad, um, you kind of think, no, is there something positive to be found in this? Is there some way to strengthen uh, myself or my relationships with others or to see the world in a different way? And it kind of motivates you to go through that growth process. Hmm. What are some more uh, examples of some of the laws, the magic uh, laws of magical thinking? Um, one is this idea that objects carry essences. And so we value celebrity memorabilia or um, family heirlooms. Huh. Um, so just uh, if an object is just touched or owned by <laughs> someone you care about, yeah. it somehow makes that object special. There's some sort of magical essence to it. Um, and so people will um, think that they'll you know, play better wearing um, maybe shoes that have been uh, touched by their favorite sports hero or, um, or they'll feel comforted <laughs> wearing a sweater that had been owned by their grandparents or um, or they'll feel cursed. A lot of people would not want to wear an article of clothing that had been worn by a Nazi, for instance. Even right. If, even if it had been washed. There's just something slightly creepy about that. Yeah, don't let that in our house. It's, yeah. I, I guess, and again, I guess that's kind of the, it's, I, some of it seems a little irrational, and it's, but it's so accepted and rational. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's it's so... We don't think of it as magical thinking. It just seems um, kind of natural that, of course, you would want to own this, you know, thing that had been owned by uh, a celebrity or that you wouldn't want to <laughs> wear a sweater that Hitler had worn. <laughs> right. you know? Well, I, we had a, one of our kids, uh, a basketball star, threw his wristband up into the stands, and my kid brought it home, and all I could think was disgusting. That yeah. thing is just full of sweat. But yeah. he's like, Dad, it's the greatest sweat ball I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> what, Matt, what are some other uh, magical thinking issues we're dealing with or laws? Uh, a common one is belief in luck. So we have all these things that we do, like wearing lucky shirts or crossing our fingers or knocking on wood. Um, and that results, I think, from just our, our pattern finding. Um, so people or animals in general learn by finding patterns in the world between cause and effect or recognizing certain things as, uh, in the same category. Um, like those are both trees, for instance, even though they look slightly different. Mm. And so by naturally looking for patterns in the world, we might think that, okay, if I do this and then that happens, maybe this caused that. Uh, if I wear this shirt and then I win a tennis match, maybe the shirt helped me win the tennis match, and then you attribute luck to this shirt. Uh, and there's some research showing that that, in some cases, can actually be beneficial in that it can provide a sense of control uh, when you lack control. Hmm. So there was one study where subjects were given a golf ball, and they were asked to make 10 golf putts. And half of them were told that the golf ball was a lucky golf ball. And those subjects actually made about 35% more successful golf putts than the other subjects. Really? So it was just sort of a placebo effect. It yeah. made them uh, feel more effective and it enhanced their performance. It, 
but the but the answer was still in the person, right? They didn't have a magical force driving the ball to the hole. It was just believing more in yourself. So it is a placebo effect, I guess. And and a lot of this magic might seem it might be placebo, but the results still show that they're still there. It works. Yeah. So the, yeah, yeah. So the effects come not through some. Um, magical or mystical force in the world it's all self-generated it's sort of um it's like dumbo's um dumbo flying yeah. with the feather he believed he could and therefore that's what made him able to do it well and i guess that's a great theory until all of a sudden you believe you're really lucky and you've lost your house your car in a gambling problem um and i guess the crazy thing about humans is we could just keep you know, well, luck will change tomorrow, right? You know, luck, it'll be different tomorrow. I just need to wear yeah, my so different that's, socks. That's right. So that's one of the dangers of magical thinking. Um, you know, gambling, for instance, we might rely too much on luck and think that it will guide us through. And so maybe you don't need to prepare for a test or for a presentation. And um, maybe you don't need to see a doctor because if you just believe you'll get better, then you'll get better. Mm. Um so you really need to, you know, pay attention to science and, and medicine and uh, rationality and think, okay, these are the, the steps that I logically need to take to uh, make what I want to happen, happen. But then magical thinking can be sort of, you know, once you've done all you can do, otherwise uh, it can add a little bit of extra support. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess too, and just reconnect us back to the fact that that um, beliefs matter. What we believe really matters to us, whether it's factual or not. That's right. That's, uh, I mean, everything that we do is guided by, by our beliefs. Um, we can't really know reality directly. It's all interpreted through our, our perceptions and our thinking. So uh, beliefs are really important in that way. And I guess the hard thing about beliefs and questioning beliefs is you'd have to question them with more beliefs. So how does how does one question their own thinking without being trapped in their thinking? Um, that's a really deep question. Yeah. Uh, somehow we get by. Yeah, we do. Um, it's yeah, such... I, I would say intuition. Yeah. I mean, if we were to logically think about everything that we do and say and think, uh, scientifically, then we wouldn't get very far. And that's, that's why we have to rely on, on reflexes and intuition and rules of thumb. That's great advice. Great advice. Well, Matt, we appreciate your time on the show again. And um, good luck with uh, your book, Magical Thinking, Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, How Irrational Beliefs Keep Us Happy, Healthy, and Sane. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. You bet. Interesting, interesting stuff. There's so much to learn, folks. Your thinking matters. And interesting, too, your thinking influences other people's thinking. It's, uh, there's power in this cooperative world we live in. There's also power in your intuition, that sense, that deeper sense inside of you of what's going on. Um, that higher power you believe in, there's power there. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue the journey, helping you see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us.
Whenever you find yourself before a judge, think before you plea. If you've recently gone through a messy breakup with your significant other, and you want to get back at them by vandalizing their car, think before you key. If you've had too much Dr. Pepper to drink on a long road trip, and decide to stop on the side of the road to relieve yourself, think before you wee. And the next time you're taking a court-ordered class on decision-making called Thinking Matters, and are toying with the idea of attempting a getaway via the ceiling, please think before you flee. This message brought to you by thinkers across America. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm telling you. It's so interesting how we we are connected and uh, our goal, if we want to influence people, you got to look at your own thinking, right? And then know that everything you're doing, everything you're saying is going to influence others as well. Um, <laughs> here's an example of where you got to be careful what you bring on the airplane. Airline officials say they called for help after a passenger was found stowing a monkey in his shirt during a Las Vegas-bound flight. It's a big monkey. (laughs) The Frontier Airlines spokesperson Richard Oliver says the incident happened Tuesday night on a flight from Columbus to Las Vegas. Oliver says the passenger broke policy by not informing the airline that he was bringing a service animal on board and then refused to turn over documents verifying the monkey's status. So we've talked about service animals. Um, uh, what do we call those, Terry? The the animals that – comfort animals. Yes. Monkey see, monkey do? No, that's different. That's a different one. Um, like a comfort animal, yeah. you might need a dog or a cat. To a help. turkey. We had a turkey once. We had a turkey once. once. There was photographs and online. And then you know, we had the one – the guy that wanted to bring the mule on, his comfort mule. Um so this guy brings a monkey on board but doesn't tell everybody. Now, you can't have you, a monkey on board. You must board. declare all monkeys before boarding the airplane. Well, I, and I would bet pretty much all animal, all animals ought to be declared. I mean, I don't want a guy next to me with a cobra, right? What, even if it's a comfort cobra. This animal, the monkey, by the way, was a certified service animal. Oliver says the animal was brought uh, surreptitiously onto the plane in a duffel bag and never got loose during the flight. It wasn't immediately clear whether the passenger uh, faces consequences or not. You know who else was on that flight? Who? <coughs> oh, was it on Hillary's airplane? I think so. That's why there's that buzz in the background. Oh, yeah. This is Hillary's <coughs> Hillary commenting about the monkey. <coughs> Hillary, how'd you feel about the monkey? <coughs> Wow, she still can't get rid of that cough. I worry about her. She's got to kick that. You know what? I think she might be allergic to monkeys. That's another problem with just having any service animal on board is, you know, what if you're allergic? Hmm. I could send you into a coughing fit. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. What do you think, Terry? Any other news that we have to pay attention to this hour that just burning in your heart? I found this interesting. Formula One, yeah. right? 
It's a national, uh, international. I'm turning into Hillary Clinton. Hold on. Oh, he's having a moment. Excuse me. Had to had to cough up that whatever obstruction was. Um, so for, uh, Formula One, international racing circuit. Yeah. Uh, as this puts it, if NASCAR is known for souped-up stock cars and salt-of-the-earth drivers, Formula One is about space-age engineering and globe-trotting racers. Right? Billion-dollar cars, all kinds of crazy money being thrown around in these uh, different uh, races that they have. As 400 million global viewers for each individual race they have, right? Yeah. So uh, it, the, the series was purchased by Liberty Media, a cable television conglomerate with stakes in Charter Communications, Sirius XM Radio, and the Atlanta Braves. Really? They purchased the series for $4.4 billion. Wow. That's a, that's a series. I, I had no idea Formula One was so big. So big. It, it, $4.1 billion? $4.4 billion Boy, what they sold the series for. Amazingly, that's still $2 billion short of the NCAA football it is. revenue. <laughs> Of the top 10 teams in the... Now, the television audience has grown by 40% since NBC Sports took over the domestic broadcast wow. rights in 2013. Yeah. More access, people watch, all that kind of stuff. But Formula One, $4.4 billion. Don't ask Gary Johnson what Formula One is. Gary, like, what? Formula One? Isn't that an ingredient in Wrigley's gum, Formula One? I think it's what children eat before they uh, are old enough to have solids. <laughs> and yeah. another story. Yeah. For years, food technology companies have referred to their products. Food technology companies have referred to their products as cultured Uh or lab grown. Hold on. Lab grown food products. Yes. So, what are we? Are we talking about animals? Meat. They grow meat-like products in laboratories. So they're, they're trying to figure out what are, how we're supposed to refer to this. Do we refer to it as cultured? Is it lab-grown? What's the most appetizing way to say fake food? Now, hold on now. Yeah. Do they grow this meat on the bones? No. And under the skin of animals? Petri dishes. Ugh. Are you serious? Yeah. And we're calling it – they want to know – they want the, uh, they want people to say, should we call it cultured? Yeah, food. Well, that's what they call it, cultured or lab grown. These companies, it's alive. There's, these companies making their first foray into the public eye. They need to have a more PR friendly <laughs> okay. name. Okay. okay. Pro pink protein, pink protein remember pockets. Doctor Frankenfurter. Remember the pink slime that was yeah. in hamburgers? Yeah, that that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Uh, to get over that, there's a push to coalesce around a new term. Okay. I wanted to ask you to what? see if this works. Okay, okay. Clean food. No. 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 Uh, balabnia. Balab- balabnia. Can you pass me a slice of the balabnia? <laughs> by, by opting for this terminology, the industry hopes to better communicate to people the ethos behind their products rather than the actual process as how they're created. Man alive. How about pink protein pockets? <laughs> protein pockets. Protein pink pockets. pockets. Huh. <laughs> pink pockets. They're, they're trying to get, you know, up next oh, to say like is... clean energy, yeah. clean coal. Oh, I'm sick It's a now. positive term. I just invited someone to lunch and now I'm sick. Okay, we'll have to come back to this. Yeah. We'll come back next hour, discuss what to call cultured or lab-grown food. That's not grown on the bones of an animal. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. We are doing a Coach's Corner, uh, giving you my take, my version on some pretty healthy New Year's resolutions. Um, I mean, I know a lot of you have already, you know, you're already on it. But I, I think it comes down to about 5% of people in the end actually make New Year's resolutions and keep those New Year's resolutions. So keep it up, folks. Uh, let me just suggest, though, there might be a different way to approach a New Year's resolution that could increase the odds that you are going to actually succeed. And I'm calling it the tangible versus intangible approach. Because most of us end up focusing our time, our energy on a tangible goal. And when you're goal setting, that's one of the things that every expert would say. Yeah, you've got to have a very specific, tangible type of goal. I agree. I totally agree. The problem with it is there's a big jump between having a tangible goal and understanding the intangibles that make it work. Every single time I've set an exercise goal, it was my intangible motivation my intangible thoughts, my intangible uh, needs, beliefs, feelings. It, sometimes it was my relationships and sometimes my habits, all of which are intangible. They're all kind of inside of me and need and are, and are directed by me that end up derailing my goal. So instead of spending all of your energy on something that's incredibly tangible that you can believe in, you might want to also focus on the intangibles. So far, I've talked about two things uh, that are intangibles that you need to be asking yourself. Your thoughts. So this year, what thoughts, if elevated, would create the most positive impact for the year? If the thought is that you need to improve your sense of uh, self-respect, respecting yourself, your own sense of self-esteem, valuing and believing in yourself, if that's the thought, then let's work on that. Let's not try to do this in reverse where I'm going to go get abs, an incredible six-pack so that I can feel better about myself. Why don't I feel better about myself and then start setting some tangible goals? Now, you could do both, right? And I would love you. If you want to do both, go ahead and do both. However, most of us just set the tangible goal and we don't really dig into the other stuff, especially our thinking, because that's harder. (sighs) I don't like to think about my thoughts because it makes me think bad thoughts. And then I feel negative feelings. The second uh, intangible I was talking about before the break, you got to work on your feelings. What feelings, if elevated, would you would have the most positive impact on this new year for you? What feelings do you need to change about you? What feelings do you need to change about your view and your feelings about your life, about your job? Is it negativity? Is it a feeling of overwhelm? Is it a feeling like you have no energy? What's the feeling? Third intangible, relationships. What relationships need a stronger connection this year? Now, I'm not talking what people. I'm talking about relationships. What relationships in your life need a stronger connection from you? Your conscience is telling you all the time, I'm losing my kids. I need to spend more time. I need to pay more attention to my kids. Time, you can probably block out 
and and go get more time, but I need to know what relationship because that relationship matters to you, obviously. What people in your life do you want to get closer to, connect to, or make a closer part of your life? What relationships need more attention from you this year? By the way, those relationships may be different than last year's relationships. And you can you can adjust and focus on a different relationship if you need to. What relationships, if improved, will most positively impact the quality of your peace in your life? What relationships are the most important to you and your highest purposes in life? And what is the most important thing you can do this year to improve connection in these relationships? So set some goals around the relationship, around the thoughts, around the feelings, last but not least, around the habits. What habits, if established, would most elevate what you're trying to become this year? What habits, if you were able to accomplish them, would help you become the person you want to be? And get into understanding the habit. If the habit is a habit of exercise, if the habit is a habit of um, uh, you know, smoking, drinking, if you want to cut back on unhealthy foods, what are the habits you want to work on? So of all the things in your life, what are the most important things that you do that make you the best person you can become? So to me, that's all a habit is, right? All a habit is, is what you do. So what are the actions you need to work on? And um, then when, when you answer the question, well, I need to work on my exercise habits. Then what you could go back and ask is, great, what thoughts do I have around exercise that need to change? What feelings do I have that need to change? How can my relationships influence or enhance my ability to, to keep this habit? Make sense? It's, it's a different approach, and it, a lot of you may be thinking, well, I do that, I do that. But what, what I find in the end, every time, every time I fail in one of my goals, it's going to come down to a thought that I'm not dealing with effectively, past, present, or future, feelings that I'm having or have had that I haven't dealt with, relationships that might impede or enhance and or my habits. I'd work on those parts of your goal setting, not just on your six-pack. And here's the coolest reason why. When I, um, when I have my thoughts aligned to a more healthy me and my feelings are now coming and flowing, that, by the way, in my world is called motivation. Motivation is when my thoughts are aligned to generate the right feelings to get the right stuff done. And if I fix my thinking and my feeling to create a healthier vibe and a healthier direction, then I might actually find out that as a 46-year-old male who's never had a six-pack, that I probably don't need one, but I do need I want to be healthier. I want to be fit. I want to fit into clothes better. And what's amazing is by having the right thought and the right feeling, I'll actually probably end up setting better tangible goals. And I'm also not limited to just one tangible goal. There are 500 different ways I can become healthier, not just a six-pack. 
Does that make sense? I'm telling you, it will it will free you up. Because once you get the principle right of thought, you'll have a million options for how else you can think healthier about yourself. It might be able to use your other talents. It might be able to use other um, other you know strengths that you have in order to elevate your thinking. So four basic things, thoughts, feelings, relationships, habits, thoughts, feelings, relationships, habits. And you could even wake up every morning and just think, great, today, what thought do I need to elevate? Don't, don't work on the thought you need to, that's broken. Work on the, just say, what do I need to, what thought do I need to improve or elevate to have the greatest impact today? Oh, okay, I'm going to be positive today. Positivity. Be specific. What is it? What is it about positivity? What drains me at my positivity? And and try to create a, a healthier view. What would it look like if I was feeling positive today? I'd get up and I'd run out and I'd spend time having breakfast with my kids. Great. What would that look like? And what, would that, what does that make you feel if when you're out there on those days and you're effectively dealing with your kids? And then get to your feelings. I'd feel better. I'd, I'd, I'd leave the house. I wouldn't feel as much guilt for not having had conversations with my kids before they went to school. Great. How would that strengthen the relationships? Oh, profoundly. They'd trust me more. They'd talk to me more. I'd know more about their lives. Great. What can I do to make this a habit? Maybe get to bed earlier, maybe, and then you make the habit. I know, not easy, just different. And you don't even need to do all four. Just work on one of them, your thoughts, your feelings, your relationships, or your habits. I'm telling you, folks, change is hard. And I think the idea is don't get caught up in the need to perfect this. Talk about progress. Think about direction. If I can think better today than I did yesterday, oh, that's a huge advantage. If I can feel better today, just a little bit than I did yesterday, or if I can feel overall better this week than I did last week, or this month than I did last month, that's better. If my relationships are a tad bit healthier, stronger, that's great. If my habits are a little more aligned to more who I want to become, it's great. I don't need you perfect at it because the reality is you won't be. And I think that's actually the reason that this works because you don't need to be perfect. That's a thought you might need to change. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, as part of the Coach's Corner, one of the things I wanted to just quickly talk about is, you know, we were just talking about paranoia. And mental health in general is something we're just not paying enough attention to. And yet every week we have a new story, at least, major headline of a shooting here, of, you know, a hostage situation there. You've heard of murder-suicide. You've heard of all of these different things. Uh, They all make the news. And those are all examples of mental health gone awry. So I wanted to run through a wonderful article I found on World of Psychology and on Psych Central um, by Margarita Tartakovsky, who um, wrote uh, an article on the mental health, nine myths about mental illness and therapy. Okay, Nine myths we got to keep straight. So you think about your life your family, your relationships. Uh, Myth number one, having mental illness means you're weak. The reality is, no, you know, about uh, overall, uh, every one of us are going to have some experience with mental illness, either our own or someone else's that we love and we care close, we care a lot about. 
you're not weak because you have mental illness. You're just normal, right? Normal people, just like you don't think people that have diabetes are weak. Mental illness is, it's, you know, it's, it could be anything from anxiety to depression. It could be um, paranoia, as we learned about just a few minutes ago. Myth number two, anyone who behaves erratically is bipolar or borderline. Don't be throwing those titles around. Those are actual clinical distinctions. Bipolar and borderline personality disorders, they're different things. And just because someone's a little erratic, it could be, you know, they're running for office. (laughs) That might be the key. Just, I mean, instead, just say, hey, are you running for office? Uh, Myth number three, people with mental illness don't lead productive lives. Not true. A lot of people with high-profile people with mental illness include Harrison Ford, Halle Berry, Terry Bradshaw, all uh, living with depression. So the reality is a lot of really successful people. In fact, remember, it's just a percentage of all the people have mental illness. So it's negative. People do live productive lives. Uh, myth number four, psychotherapy is like talking to a friend. Eh, kind of. But it's also like talking to an educated friend that's going to help you get maybe deeper into your issues and help you question your own you know, foundation. What's going on? Why did you... How did you get this thought going, and how do you keep that thought going? So it's a powerful tool for you. Um, Myth number five, seeking psychotherapy means you have serious problems. Not really. Sometimes it's just, you know, you need a little help. You need a little direction. You need to change some negative beliefs or some patterns. Myth number six, therapists tell you what to do. Uh, You know what? They don't dole out advice usually. What I've uh, found and learned is that most therapists are there to just help you notice your patterns and help create self-awareness. Um, there are some that will also you know, be more solution-oriented if that's what you want. A lot of times we call those coaches. Um, therapists are really there to make sure you can break some, some ties of dependency. Myth number seven, medication is enough to treat mental illness. Actually, the research shows uh, mental uh, illness, if you treat it with medication and psychotherapy, tends to work more effectively. So if you are somebody that is has a mental health issue and you're only taking medication, it might be smart for you to go get some other help uh, with a therapist because that would actually double your double your benefit. Myth number eight, having a parent with mental illness guarantees you'll struggle too. Not so. You might be predisposed. You might have a tendency. You might have other corollary effects, right, secondary effects because of your parent's mental illness. But the reality is, is it doesn't necessarily indicate you're going to have it. And myth, myth number nine, alcoholism and substance abuse are the result of poor lifestyle choices. Addiction is a disease, though, folks. It's, so that's not true. I mean, it could be impacted by your lifestyle, obviously. And we've talked about that on the show before. And um, But it also could be part of a mental health issue. In fact, a lot of people suffering addiction suffer with that. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, one of the things we want to make sure we teach ourselves and others is some self-reliance, especially when it comes to technology, when it comes to our cars, whatever. We, we rely heavily on others because we may not know how to fix our own car. But when it comes to your own internet safety, don't just trust that you bought a program and you're safe. Do some other things, like the double verification on, on certain things. How, how cool is that, that companies now offer you two points of confirmation so that you need to have two data points at two distinct times in order to get something to happen? 
or uh, you know, eventually, I guess someday it'll be great because they'll just scan our eyes and boy, they will go and we'll be happy and everyone. But you know what? It'll be hacked. So it's a big deal. Be careful with it. Other, uh, another article I found from Huffington Post written by Ka- Katia McGlynn, nine things you can't remember anymore because of technology. You ready for this? Because we have all this technology, we probably don't remember phone numbers like we used to. We used to have to actually remember the phone number. I just signed up my one of my kids for a new phone, and I had to reorganize all my children's phones. And guess what? I didn't know any of their phone numbers. I know where to find them. I can call my wife. She knows them. But uh, do you remember phone numbers? Because if not, maybe technology's uh, the reason. You maybe don't remember birthdays like you used to. Why would your brain want to remember something if you could just put it in your calendar? Man, if all of our technology went down, no one would know when to celebrate birthdays. You'd have to go tell everyone every day when it's your birthday. Uh, long division. Most of us don't remember long division because you have to. You have a calculator now on your phone. When I was a kid, you, we weren't allowed to use calculators. Actually, when I was a kid, calculators didn't exist. But we weren't allowed to use them anymore. We don't know how to write a check anymore. I'd love to see one of my kids write a check. They'd be clueless. They don't know how to do it. We may not know how to write in cursive anymore. By the way, back in the day, my dad had the best handwriting you've ever seen. Everyone's like, oh, Martin's handwriting is beautiful. Nobody, nobody. That's a line. That's a phrase you will never hear. He's got the best handwriting you've ever seen. Uh, Do you know how to write in cursive? Do your kids know how to write in cursive? Um, Just writing in general. If you've ever had one of your teens, you know, have to write you letters because they're out of the country or whatever, when you see how they write, they don't write in sentences. And who knew? Who knows what LOL means, for heaven's sakes? Or my son uses ha-ha a lot in his letters. To tell me something's a joke, he says ha-ha. You know, back in the day, we just assumed you'd get it because that was funny. We don't even know how to give directions anymore because now we just, you know, I'll just send you the address and you can just do Google Maps on it. We don't necessarily know how to wait for someone in public anymore, according to this Huffington Post article, because now we can't wait if we don't have a phone. It's not going to work. And a lot of us don't know how to spell tricky words without looking them up because our phone autocorrects everything we write. Anyway, just a few crazy things that you may be losing as well as your cybersecurity during this uh, wonderful advanced age. We'll continue the journey here as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, it's one thing to get a college degree. We hear about what an impact that has uh, on your ability to earn money, your just your sense of well-being and the real-life well-being that can take place because of your education, except then you got to get a job, right? So it's one thing to have the degree. It's another thing to get the job. We wanted to talk today about where these jobs are coming from. Uh, where do you need to live to get a good job if you're just leaving college and you got to do you have to be willing to travel do you have to be willing to move in order to make it happen and uh, college graduates they're going to be walking away with some student debt usually more debt probably than uh, than even their parents had going into that 
So we've asked Michael Betts to join us. He's an assistant professor of human development and family science at The Ohio State University. He's here with us this morning to talk a little bit about uh, where today's college grads are going to find their jobs and how we can help them be more successful. Uh, Dr. Betts, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me on the show. Great to have you. Talk to us about what you're learning in all of your work and research. Why why is it so important? I mean, it seemed like there's going to be jobs in most of the country, isn't there? Or is that just an illusion today? Yeah, there's uh, it's it's definitely changing. That's for sure. There's been a lot of industry restructuring. Uh, different industries are growing. Um, other industries are declining. The manufacturing sector, for example, there's more uh, retail and uh, more local service jobs that are becoming more and more available. Um, and what we see a little bit is a little bit of a, a split in the labor market where you have kind of these uh, two groups of people where you have really highly educated, college-educated workers um, whose unemployment rates are really low and there's lots of well-paying jobs. Uh, and on the other end of the spectrum, there's those who maybe only have a, college, or a high school degree and their job prospects are, are much more limited to uh, service sector jobs that might not be as well-paying. And um, but the, I guess, uh, you know, one of the things that, that has changed is uh, the the availability of jobs within a local region. So, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, you might have had to move. Uh, to get a job that suits your skills. Right. You would go to wherever the, the jobs were. Um, and because the, the labor market has changed towards more service-oriented jobs, uh, those jobs are located all across the country. And so what we see is that actually internal migration rates of people moving within the United States is declining pretty pretty dramatically. Hmm. And the lowest levels of internal migration uh, in over 50 years in the United States right now. And, and your so, research talked about the 90s, which is when I graduated. Mm-hmm. So back then, if I, I graduated with a degree in journalism, if I wanted to be a journalist, I pretty much had to move out of my state and go mm-hmm. where the job was. And you're saying today there's less of that going on? Yeah, and... Um, I don't know, maybe your and I's professions aren't the, the best examples. Um, being a professor, it's still the case. Where, yeah, you're still going to move. Yeah, you're still going to move. So this isn't across the board. But in general, um, the jobs that people are getting now, uh, they're located in, in lots of different areas because they're more service-based. Hmm. And service-based as opposed to uh, something that's like tradable where you're manufacturing something and exporting it somewhere else. You would have to go to wherever that industry was located. And lots of industries usually have hubs or clusters. Um, and so, you know, if you were in the, the automotive industry, you're moving to Detroit. Right. Um, well, today's jobs are more service-based. And so um, their customers are local. And they might be local. They might be global. But right. Uh, basically, they can provide that service. Yeah, you could be a regional rep 
and rep something in your area for a company from Ohio or Detroit or, you know, the automotive, you know, belt. Yeah, absolutely. And even things like IT jobs where, where, you know, now you can remotely access uh, what's going on somewhere halfway across the world. And uh, so these, these service jobs, you, you don't have to move for them. And so there's a, there's a lot more of them. And so that's, that's part of what's going on with the, in, the decline in internal migration. Um, but this is something that economists have just recently started to look at. Um, and so there are kind of more questions than answers right now. Well, so wouldn't that mean that a lot of these students, these grads, would stay maybe in smaller communities, smaller towns, but but they are, they also, I guess, may not be – are they as drawn to stay there? Or do they want mm-hmm. to get to the big cities where there's, you know, the arts and all of these other things that college grads may want? Yeah, so there's another trend that's going on uh, with the decline in, in migration and the increase in service jobs is um, that the labor market is not nearly as robust as it was in the 90s where we basically had full employment and really high wages um, in the 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s, we had two recessions, one of which was the, the Great Recession, the, one of the largest economic shocks in the last century. And um, so there's a lot more volatility in labor markets. And what we found was that where in the 90s college grads might be going to places where other college grads that were fast-growing or had fast-growing industries um, they're going to places with that are bigger cities, with higher populations, and that matters for a couple of reasons. So you think about bigger cities; they they offer different things for workers. But w- one of the main things you're looking at, if if you're looking for a job, and that's the most important thing uh, to you as a new college graduate, is that you're going to have a lot more opportunities in a bigger city to match your skills with an employer who's looking for your skills. So, you know, if you're on the furthest end, New York City, uh, there's lots of people that are looking for highly specialized, people with a highly specialized skill set. You know, you take that same skill set and move to somewhere in North Dakota, uh, there might not be any jobs for you there. Hmm. So um, that's kind of the, the primary finding uh, in, in this research study was that, you know, we, we don't have evidence to say that it is, it is from the labor markets um, in the, 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 the volatility in labor markets. But what we find is that college graduates are moving to places that have higher populations, so bigger cities, um, because these cities might provide a little bit more of a buffer for people in uncertain economic times. Yeah. These recessions, I guess, it's it's really it's fascinating because we've we've created systems and the markets have changed in a way that internal migration isn't as necessary. You don't need to you don't need to leave, but then the economy hits and for the young or the new college grad, um if they want to have the highest likelihood of finding work that's and and a culture and an environment they like, they might feel compelled to go to the big city. Yeah, that's right. And there there have been some studies that have looked at kind of the other side of the coin where 
So we, we looked at places, and we were interested in the question of, okay, what places are attracting college graduates? But you can kind of look at the same question, a very similar question, it's kind of the two sides of the same coin of looking at, okay, where, uh, what are college graduates moving for? So you're looking at the individual level, the individual college graduates and saying, okay, what traits um, are they looking for in a place? And there's been some research that has found that that jobs are still the most important things for college graduates. Mm. So uh, other considerations like what types of amenities that city offers, you know, what's going on there, the, the cultural scene, um, distance to uh, recreation, things like oceans and mountains and things like that. Those are important, but uh, jobs still kind of trump everything else when yeah. it comes to what college graduates are looking for. Well, and it, it's interesting for parents, isn't it? Because as a parent, if if so, I was from the 90s, and my view of how you get a job and keep a job seems so different from my children. Yeah. But I might apply pressure on them, like, well, you better stay near us or whatever, and I want to raise my grandkids. Um, yeah. That That's going to create – so I guess part of this is understanding the impact – on your children, if they live in a, you know, a Midwestern inner, I mean, a tiny city in the Midwest or a tiny town or community in the Midwest, they may not be able or may not want to stick around. Yeah, you know, that's right. So you have, it, it kind of works both ways. Um, so we, we are, we do live in an increasingly urbanized world. So more and more people are living near cities, maybe not in central cities, right. but uh, you know, suburbs and metro areas. And so, you know, those are functional labor markets. And if you're within those metro areas, then, um, you know, because more and more people are living in those metro areas, we and the fact that the labor market is more service-based, we people might be in a better situation because, okay, they're already in a metro area, and uh, they can find a job in their area of expertise that this might actually be really beneficial um, because there's a lot of kind of non-economic things like uh, child care, for example, from your parents or just having those relationships to be able to maintain those family relationships. Um, those, those are really big factors in why people move and deciding whether or not uh, they're going to move. But, I mean, you make a great point. A generation ago, that wasn't the case. No. Where, um, you know, we not, not that people didn't value those things, but the, the labor market was different where you did have to move. And because jobs were still the, the biggest thing in people's minds, they would make that sacrifice. Yeah. And, um, now, you know, so because we have an increasingly urbanized population and people are living more and more in metro areas uh, that they can get jobs where they live and still keep those family connections. Yeah. I can tell you, you know, from just anecdotally, my, my wife and I, both of our families live in the town that we live in. Um, and just the, the benefit of having them around oh, yeah. out there and things like that, it's, 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 it's huge. incredible. I agree, Michael. And um, let's, uh, let's take a break. We'll come back and talk about that. But parents, be understanding it's not the world you lived in. And if you notice that your kids can't get a job after college, it might simply be it's time to move. They might need to go look somewhere else. 
um, if it's not happening where they are. We'll take a break. More with Dr. Michael Betts when we come back. You know, college graduates of the new millennium, they're living at a different time, folks, than we did uh, maybe when we were back getting a job. So because of that, they have different options for working. Um, They may not need to leave because they could possibly find a job in their area, or they may want to go uh, where the jobs are in some of the metro areas or bigger cities. Joining us is Dr. Michael Betts. He is a professor, assistant professor in the Department of Human Sciences at Ohio State University, and his expertise is in regional and rural urban economics. He's here today to talk about some of the drivers um, that that are pushing our our grads, our, our uh, college grads, um, to to choose the jobs and the locations where where they're moving. We appreciate you being back with us. Thank you, Doctor Betts. Oh, no problem. Glad to be here. What's uh, so as a parent? I mean, I do. I need to make sure that I understand my economy isn't their economy. My options yeah. weren't their options. What else can I do to make sure that uh, that I, I'm? I guess I'm helping. I'm aiding. I'm I'm educating my child into the best way to go find a job once they graduate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, I mean, that's a that's a good question. Um, I think one of the things is when we think about these questions as economists, we kind of model them. And, um, you know, one of the things we say is that people vote with their feet. And, uh, you know, we look at the person, the individual, and and they have to make that decision. Am I going to move or am I not going to move? And they have to factor everything into that equation. So thinking about, you know, stuff like uh, jobs, which are obviously highly important, um, but thinking about things that maybe don't necessarily have um, a specific monetary value, like having family nearby um, or having long-term friendships and relationship, those are all things that factor into that um, equation. And so just kind of sitting down and thinking about those things and deciding, okay, do I, where I live right now, uh, is that going to be the best place for me, or you know, is this city down the road here uh, going to offer something different? And that's a, that's a little bit of a tricky uh, equation. Um, one of the, the good things that has happened over the last 20 years is just the availability of information, um, and that is is probably a driving force in the internal migration discussion there, where. You know, if you're considering a move 40 years ago, you would have to drive there, hang out for maybe a weekend, and then make a decision based on that information. Um, Now, you know, you can just hop online and you can find out the employment rate and uh, average wages of people in your industry there, how much rent is. Uh, Those are all considerations. It's so true. It's such a different age. And it it also the the way you can communicate you know with your family if you do live out of state is completely different facetiming skyping um 
it's it's a different world, except too, I guess there's still the same push of economic stability and you know, you you want a career. You want something, especially somebody that has been studying in a specific area or a targeted area. Would right. you would you say that uh, is this? I guess the the uh, the technology advancements are, it's helping smaller economies, right? These smaller towns now, you you can work at a call center and work from your home from a small town. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that that has definitely uh, helped s- smaller towns and some smaller areas survive that wouldn't have been able to without those advancements in technology. One of the key things, though, um, and this is not going to be a surprise to any of your listeners, that uh, you know over the last seventy years, in general, the the main driver of migration, just in general, not only college graduates, has been weather. And so moving to nice places, moving to the Sun Belt. So people are moving west and they're moving um, to uh, these warmer climates. And yeah, there is there is some availability where you can find jobs uh, in smaller towns. But, you know, the reality is, is, you know, that is one of the things that has to go into you, your decision when you're thinking about these things is in these smaller towns. Um, it's just the nature of a smaller town. Right. There's not going to be as many labor market opportunities. So if you lose your job and you have to look for another job or if something else happens, um, you might there's there's a little bit of higher risk there than living in a city where you lose your job in a city. There's, there's probably a few other opportunities out there for you immediately. We, so it's just a part of the equation that you have to take into consideration and different people uh, are more comfortable risk with risk, and right. so different people make different decisions. We see that um, you know there's there's some other discussion about maybe having better tech options for tech you know for for more technical uh, trainings versus universities and getting college degrees. Is mm-hmm. is it the same? Do you, is the data showing the same? Uh, mobility for people that have technical skills, uh, maybe you know how to fix engines on an airplane, or is that one that you're still going to have to pretty much move to where you're specialized and where the specialties exist? Yeah, so, um, you know, off the top of my head, that's not something that I've done a lot of research on and just that specifically that middle group. But what I can say is that education levels, any additional education is is going to be really beneficial for anyone out there looking for a job. The unemployment rates and the wage differentials of just getting an associate's degree or having some college are, are really large and, and substantial. So, um, you know, like I kind of talked about at the beginning of the, the, the segment here, that there's kind of the split of the labor market where it's increasingly concentrated into really well high paying jobs and, um, low-paying jobs for people that only might have a high school degree. Um, and that that split is just going to continue. But there is, a, there is a place, you know, even for just getting an associate's degree or some education beyond uh, high school really makes a big difference in lifetime earnings and uh, unemployment rates and things like that. Mm. So those types of things are, are valuable. You don't have to, if if you feel like college isn't the the right thing for you, uh, it is still really important to get 
some kind of training to increase your skills beyond high school degree with yeah. just a high school degree there's there's not a lot of good jobs out there yeah it's going to elevate anyway yeah. um and then i guess uh when you think about it as a, as a college student um i see a lot of them here at brigham young university mm-hmm. and in the end so many of them seem a little disparaged hopeless because they're they're not even sure they can get a job in their field, and they worry yeah. that – so is it more about choosing a field that's more marketable? Is it more about just being adaptable? How do you how do you make sure the college degree brings you some revenue? Yeah, right. I mean, that's a great question. Um, you know, personal experience, my younger sister has a degree in nutrition, and she's – working uh, in finance right now. So (laughs) I think it is a little bit more of the latter is that uh, what you said of being a little bit more flexible. Uh, And one of the things that's happening is that people are working longer. And so you have these more experienced workers that are holding on to their jobs longer. And so it's harder to get those entry-level jobs as a new college graduate. But what I would say is that if you're you're persistent, there there are opportunities out there, and um, that there there is also a, a large you know the boomer generation is retiring as well, and so those jobs are going to become increasingly available. And the if but it it is important to to think about you know which industries are growing and which industries are declining, and in different industries are subject to um, you know, different market forces. Uh, for instance, I do a lot of a lot of the other work that I do is in looking at communities that uh, have natural resource extraction. And so the shale boom, right? Um, you know, right now oil is is busting and prices are really low. And so, if you're a petroleum engineer, a couple of years ago, life was was fantastic. Yeah, fat and happy. Yeah, exactly. And um, and that went to the little that what that was going to the smaller communities as well, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Most of the shale development that was occurring was in smaller, more rural communities. Yeah. So. Well, Michael, we appreciate you. Great insights. Keep up your work there. Wonderful work at the Ohio State University in the Department of Human Sciences. We will take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to give you some tips on how to manage your computers. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, computers have become an essential part of everyday life, but they're also a source of frustration for many users. Our producer, Leanna Tan, shares her frustration with computers and some tips on how to make using your laptop, desktop, desktop, and phone much easier. Welcome. You've got mail. I'm cursed. I know I am. I must have made some horrible mistake in a past life, or maybe my parents forgot to invite the evil fairy to my christening as a baby. I don't know what happened, but I'm cursed. Goodbye. Every time I go near technology, it seems to break. Seriously, I am eternally bound to handwritten notes because my computer is always the first to break down and the last to start up. So, I turn to the internet to find answers. I want to get online. I need a computer. I found an article on entrepreneur.com called 8 Bad Computer Habits You Need to Break and Why You Should. 
And then I came to the realization of why I have such technological misfortune. Yeah, well, I got unlucky. I guess there are a few things I could improve on. But I know how important technology is these days, and I wanted to save you from making the same mistakes I have, based on my own bad practices and technology failure. That is why you fail. I've come up with five warnings you should follow to save yourself from this horrid curse. One. Update your computer. My finger is on the button. Push the button. Yeah, I guess it's not the best idea to ignore all those software update pop-ups for years. When my friend finally intervened in my life and updated my laptop, <laughs> it worked. I realized I was three versions behind everyone else, and it was like a whole new world opened up to me. It amazes me how far technology advances in five years. I've got an iPhone 3GS. Isn't that amazing? I was actively using my laptop and still somehow living under a rock. Two. Use your antivirus protection. Clean up, clean up, everybody everywhere. As appealing as they sound, cookies actually aren't yummy treats for your computer. And I'm definitely a culprit of this one. It's just so easy to hit the remind me later button. It just becomes a habit. I just expect that little pop-up to be on my desktop when I open it up. I don't even remember why it's there anymore. I think I would be a lot more suspicious that something was corrupting my computer if suddenly one day I didn't have that antivirus pop-up. I mean, it just seems like it takes so long to wait for it to scan through all those viruses. I I know. But take it from me. It's worth it to spend a few minutes watching a loading bar than it is to spend a few seconds waiting for a page to load every time you click on something. Don't fall for those advertising traps. Those evil Facebook postmakers lure you in with only half a picture of a celebrity's face and then a curiosity-inducing phrase like, you'll never believe what she did. And soon you find yourself sucked into a never-ending void of clicking through a billion ads and you never actually get to find out what she did, meanwhile filling your computer with all kinds of viruses and bugs. Virus equals very yes. That's not a good prize. Don't keep a million tabs open. Yes, I am known to have about 32 tabs open at any given time. What? If I click out of one, I might not remember how to navigate myself back to that web page. The World Wide Web is a vast and open place. It's easy to get lost. Lost. Aw, gee. Lost. Well. But yeah, I get it. When I complain my computer isn't downloading something quick enough to get my work done, the first thing any technician does is click out of about 30 of my tabs. Guess I should learn from the best. Five. Don't sleep with your computer on your bed. This is overall just a horrible idea. You may fall asleep and think your computer is safe and snug at the foot of your bed, but you'd be surprised how a slight tug on a blanket or a change in position can send your precious laptop flying from the top bunk and crashing to the floor. It's a it's kind of hard to expect high performance from a computer that's, well, in smithereens. Plus, think of all the back kinks you can get from rolling over that thing. That's gotta hurt. So really, the gist of this is, your computer is really like any human. It hates bugs, viruses, and freezing to death. So before you rush to call IT, have you tried turning it off and on again? Just remember my advice. Treat technology like your best friend. Keep it updated. Avoid getting sucked into online gossip. Don't make it do too many things at once. Don't feed it any nasty cookies. 
and at least give it the bottom bunk. Follow these warnings and lift the curse. Good luck. Well, I'm Liana Tan, and that's my little tangent. Shoot the bop, shoot the bop,